นะทุกท่านเข้าสู่ adapting to disruption locating the winners of future trends นะคะพร้อมแล้วขอเสียงปรบมือต้อนรับ please welcome our next set of panelists Mr Gary Monaghan investment director of Fidelity International Mr Philip Brooks managing director of Wellington Management and Mr Pinakin Patel ASIP product specialist Alliance Global Investors ขอเสียงปรบมือต้อนรับด้วยนะคะและที่ขาดไม่ได้เลยค่ะมอเตอร์เตอร์ของเราคุณธนงขันทองรองกรรมการผู้จัดการจากทางบละจอบัวหลวงค่ะ Hello again and welcome to uh, our session on adapting to uh, disruption locating the winners of future trends uh, we are very happy uh, today to have um, Pinakint from uh, Alliance um, Gary from Fidelity and Philip you know from Wellington, you know, joining us in the discussion. Uh, in this session, we are trying to identify uh, some of the key trends, if not uh, disruptive trends, that is uh, taking place, that is affecting uh, businesses, uh, industries, and also the economies. And the speed uh, of change that is taking place now to, uh, has been quite dramatic. Uh, 20 years ago, we wouldn't have imagined that the internet you know, would become so central to our life as we witness today. From home phones, landline phones, now we are having mobile phones that can do several uh, wonderful things. Mm. The disruption that is taking place now is uh, widespread, virtually touching all areas uh, in the aut automotive sector. We are moving from cars running on petrol to electric cars, and in the future, who knows, autonomous cars. Uh, from cash payment, we are now more on online payment or e-payment. Uh, the brick and mortar retail stores are being challenged by e-commerce, uh, not to mention rapid development in artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, and also automation that uh, would uh, play a key role, you know, in, in our society going forward. Uh, before uh, we start our session, I would like to inform you that it's going to be an interactive session. There will be poll questions posed to you, and then you can respond, and then our panelists, you know, will uh, give some quick thoughts, you know, or reaction to it. So let me, let me start, you know, with Pinakint. Can you give us an overview on the on how technology is driving changes you know, at the global level, particularly in Asia now, um, uh, particularly in the field of uh, artificial intelligence? Yep. So if we just thank you very much and welcome everyone. Uh, at the core of technology is for us three things: research and development, innovation, and human capital. China right now spends more on R&D than Europe. And this year, it will surpass the US on their spend on R&D. The Chinese government has in its 13th five-year plan indicated that they wish to spend 2.5% of GDP. Now remember, this is an economy that is $12.2 trillion. It is currently 2%, so the 0.5% increase is a substantial amount. Uh, Asia itself is going to exceed the US and Europe in terms of spend on R&D. 
The key to R&D is innovation. And this chart that you see on the bottom right-hand side is the number of patents that have been lodged officially. China has now lodging the most patents globally. The key to, to, to R&D is also human capital. The Chinese, every year, put out 2.8 million science and engineering graduates. That is five times the US. Okay. Elsewhere in Asia, if you look at Korea, Korea substantially spends a substantial amount of R&D. The challenge for Korea is how do they move from the spend on R&D to innovation to then making profits. Yes, the other country in Asia is Japan. Japan has historically spent substantially on R&D, but over the last five years, it has basically moved sideways. And let me give you an example between those two countries. Look at the emergence of Samsung and LG. Where were they 10 years ago? Versus a Sharp, a Panasonic versus a Sony. And that gives you some sort of idea where, which direction Korea is going in and which direction Japan is going in. So for us, this is you know, R&D spend, innovation, uh, human capital, I think, is key for technology in Asia. Gary, uh, you cover Asia and also China in particular. Uh, can you give us uh, some ideas about the technology trend that, in your opinion, uh, is creating the huge impact here, not only in Asia, but also in, in China in particular. Yeah, and uh, first of all, thank you everyone for your time today. And in terms of disruption, uh, where we're really seeing disruption is, is within payments. Okay, so China is increasingly moving from a cash-based society to a mobile payment society. And they're, they're effectively skipping that credit card um, sort of uh, impact that, that all of us were well aware of. I mean, to, just to give you two very real examples, the, the first picture on the left-hand side, I was, this is in, when I was in Guangzhou um, about two months ago, went with a colleague to go and buy a sandwich from a, from a traditional cart, and they wanted us to use Alipay and Tenpay. No cash, right? Then uh, Shenzhen last month in a taxi, he wanted us to use, Ali, he wanted us to use our QR code for, it, for mobile payment, no cash. Okay. This is happening at an extremely fast trend in China, quicker than anywhere else in the world. Okay. We are seeing, basically, in the last 12 months, our conservative estimates is that we've seen up to about 160 trillion renminbi um, of, of money, basically sort of exchange hands um, through mobile payments. Now, what I will caveat that with is that around 10 to 15% of that is to actually buy products. The other 85% or so is to, is to give red packets to their friends in, for Chinese New Year. Um, it's also to move money into, money into money, man, money market funds as well. Um, so, you know, so there is a huge impact, not just within consumption, but across various elements of, of, of basically society. Um, we are uh, very much aware of this trend, and, and the two companies in particular are Tencent and Alibaba. So Tencent with Tenpay, Alibaba with Alipay. Um, Alipay at the moment has about 54% market share. 
in total. And, and what we tend to find as a trend is that uh, you, people tend to buy bigger ticket items with Alipay. And, and that kind of makes sense because Alibaba dominates the e-commerce space. If you're off to on, online buying a television and you're, you're going to, onto your Alibaba, like Taobao or Tmall, you will be using Alipay because that's their website. So it kind of makes sense. Where, where Tencent is, is seems to be taking sort of more, more of a dominant position um, is what we consider offline payments. So that is you go to a shop, you go and buy a coffee, um, you, you maybe go to a supermarket to buy some bread. People tend to use Tenpay. And, and it's just a, a fact that people uh, in general will have their WeChat open. Because you walk along, you, you're using your WeChat, and, which is Tencent's social media platform, and therefore you just naturally use Tenpay to, to, to pay. Um, and so, so we can see two, space for two companies growing in that space and taking two slightly different directions as well. Um, but, but definitely this is an area that we think is fairly transformational. Um, what the, the additional um, sort of the additional things that we think are interesting about this is that Tencent and Alibaba, both of them, using them, them as, as an example, they're, they're developing their cloud. So, so all, of the, all of the data that they're collecting from this goes into the cloud in the background. And, and what that actually means is if you're a vendor, so for example, this, this taxi driver, if I use my 10 pay to pay for my taxi, that goes into the cloud. It, it basically automatically, um, uh, it automatically sorts out his accounts. And so therefore, he doesn't have to go home and go through his receipts and take time. It's all done for him. So suddenly, this guy is massively incentivized to move from cash to, to, uh, to mobile payments. It just makes things much more efficient for, for, for the merchants as well. And, and the more merchants that use it will mean more consumers use it, and the faster that mobile payments will be adopted by, uh, by the country. Let's move on to uh, Philip. The healthcare sector has been performing extraordinarily well at a global level uh, so far uh, this year. But we haven't heard much uh, about technology disruption you know, in the healthcare sector, even though many progresses have been achieved. Uh, can you tell us about uh, uh, innovative treatments like, like in, in, in cancer, uh, diabetes, or Alzheimer's? Good morning, everyone. Um, absolutely. I, I, I think to start off with, though, I'll, I'll set the scene about something that isn't disruption-related. And that is, I think, in, in many ways where many investors are more familiar with the idea of healthcare spending. And really, it's in the context of our own personal lives. And as we age more, individually and indeed as societies, we naturally spend more on healthcare. We typically fall ill more frequently as we age, and we need to spend more to rectify those issues. And we're seeing that aging trend globally. So whether that's the US, whether that's Europe, whether that's emerging markets, and, and China in particular, that is a global trend in a long-term supporting underlying tailwind, supporting the healthcare sector. But clearly, it's not the only driver. And linking back to innovation, we think that there are some really, really interesting, new, exciting opportunities that are driven by companies that are innovation leaders. Now, a lot of this is related to the chart that we have up right now about the focus, particularly since 2001, in doing more and more research on the human genome, decoding the human genetic code. 
Now, the first time that that was done, and that was back in 2001, decoding the human genome cost 100 million US dollars. The cost of gene sequencing has come down dramatically. This is the chart on the right-hand side, the darker line there, dramatically since 2001. At the end of last year, the cost to have your genome fully sequenced in the US was about $1,000. There are markets today, so right now, you could go to South Africa and have your genome sequenced for about 400 US dollars. The cost improvement over time has meant that more and more and more people have had their genomes sequenced. And the result of that is there's more and more and more data available to medical research scientists and to doctors to really understand the causes of disease in people. Our knowledge of what makes people sick has improved exponentially. And as that knowledge has improved, companies' abilities to generate new and effective and innovative treatments has skyrocketed. And that's that chart on the left-hand side. What that chart shows is the number of new innovative drug approvals over time. And since really 2010, so less than a decade, we've seen a significant upward inflection in new drug discovery. And those drugs are increasingly effective. So we are, we're living honestly in, in sort of a golden age of human society. And this is an idea I'm gonna come back to later on in, a, in another presentation later on today. But in general, I think there's quite a lot of skepticism and concern in markets today. And I would argue actually there's far many more reasons to be optimistic. One of those reasons is to do with medical improvements. And what this chart shows is a fairly simple chart, but there are more new medicines available today, more effective treatments than at any prior time in human history. And those treatments are increasingly effective. So I'll just give you one quick example of that. There's a company called Gilead that about five years ago brought a treatment to market called Solvadi. This Solvadi drug, for the first time in human history, cured hepatitis C. Prior to Solvadi, if you were unfortunate enough to contract hepatitis C, and it is one of the most prominent or frequent diseases in the developing world, it was a death sentence. With Solvadi, more than 95% of patients who take that drug are cured in a single course of treatment. So this innovation that we're seeing in the healthcare sector is creating huge opportunities. Thank you. Let's go to the first poll questions. I can't see it very well from here. Should I walk? I think I need to walk there. Which of the following sectors do you think you know, will be disrupted you know, the most? Uh, financials? Ah, it's coming. In which of the following sectors do you think will be disrupted the most? Uh, financials, consumer and retail, healthcare, and industrials. Uh, the audience, uh, majority of the audience believe that financials. Uh, do you agree? Uh, Gary, can, can you take on this? Um, I, I think that every, all of those sectors will be disrupted, to be perfectly frank, if I'm, if I'm given the honest answer. But I think financials 
is probably a prime candidate for the most disruption, to be frank. Um, if we just think about our financial institutions, I, I know, we all work for one, too. Um, we are typically fairly slow moving to, to start with. We, if, you, if you think of when we t speak to manufacturers, you know, they've got to be fast moving, they've got to be on trend, they've got to be doing things cheaply. Um, uh, the, the onset of things like e-payment is going to start to force financial institutions to think slightly differently. And, and that could be, uh, definitely I do think there's a lot of disruption there. Um, also things like the distribution of, of products and, and the, way that we, the, the way that we communicate with our, you know, with our clients. Um, banks are going through this, asset managers like ourselves are going through this as well. So, so the, the disruption in the financial sector is not just payments, like I mentioned, but it's multiple fact, uh, factors to think about. Um, and, and as I said, the digital strategy, how do we communicate is, is a key one. Um, and then it relates to things like fintech and, and, and so on and so forth. So I do yeah. sort of agree somewhat with the, yeah. with the answer. Kirikin, do you agree that industrials uh, is being put you know, at the bottom of the chart? Yeah, I think there's a lot going on in the industrial space in terms of disruption. Uh, but in terms of what's going on right now, what we can see, I think financials. But when you look, look and speak to a lot of industrial companies, a lot of laser tech companies, uh, a lot of in terms of the IT companies, they're doing a lot in terms of looking at new systems. And I particularly think artificial intelligence, AI, in terms of the industrial space is something that is happening in the background. It's not necessarily what we here can see, uh, but when you speak to these companies, they're doing an immense amount in terms of artificial intelligence. Okay, let's move on to uh, the second round you know, of, of our discussion, uh, starting with uh, Pinakin again. Um, uh, what are the key disruptions you know, in, in Asia in you? Your yeah, opinion. I mean, uh, in my opinion, the uh, key. Uh, are we going to reach a point where winners will be companies that have AI, and losers will be those you know without AI? Yeah, I I think that all companies need to consider AI. It's a question of to what extent you look to integrate it. Uh, AI is. I think it's probably worth just starting with a description of AI, and I searched out one, and I think this is effectively the best description I've seen. Essentially, it's a set of tools and programs that makes software smarter in a way that someone looking from the outside thinks that the output has been generated by humans. So doing this poll is a classic example of artificial intelligence. If we were doing the same poll 10 years ago, you would probably scrib scribble it down on a piece of paper. Somebody would take it away, analyze it, and then the, the answer would come back 10, 15 minutes later. Artificial intelligence has meant that we get real-time, cost-effective answers, and that's what really artificial intelligence is doing. And it is revolutionizing all industries, as we've discussed here. Uh, and in Asia, historically, Asia has always lagged technologies. But with artificial intelligence, there are three reasons why Asia, I think, is at the forefront and will be at the forefront. It is a growing talent pool in Asia. By 2025, there will be more AI talent in India and China than in the US. Okay. Right now, there are 1.8 billion millennials 
47% of those millennials sit in China and India. And if you were to include ASEAN, that goes to 55%. So when it comes to AI and thinking about AI, it, it will be those millennials that will be driving AI. Data. Now this is the very sort of, this is the fuel that powers AI. Asians have to be connected. They're obsessed with their phones relative to Europe or the US. Now, Asians are always fully digitally savvy. That means that there is a big understanding of data. And new technology. Now, Asia's been fortunate in that it has leapfrogged various technologies. So we talked earlier on. Nobody has a landline anymore in Asia because we leapfrogged that and went straight to mobile. And I think Asia itself has learned from a lot of the history of what's happened in the West, and I think going forward, we'll continue to feed on that. Uh, let me just give you one more stat on AI. Alibaba uh, recently announced that they are spending $15 billion on AI over a three-year period. So if you take $5 billion a year, that's approximately 16% of their sales is on AI. That just gives you some sort of idea of what these companies, and particularly in Asia, are budgeting. Uh, and so I'm confident that AI will be led with it by, from Asia uh, as opposed historically in the West. Philip, uh, what is going to be the game changer in the healthcare? sector is going to be gene therapy or robotic uh, yeah. operations um I, I think actually there's a number of them and i think one of the the very interesting ones and we we talk about that here on this chart is in cancer treatment um now honestly we could spend hours on this topic because there are a range of different areas where innovation is really driving change and, and improving treatments in healthcare but cancer is an important one. So in many, many countries, cancer is the leading cause of death amongst people. Um, the reason for that is our immune systems don't recognize cancer as being something that is bad, something that they need to fight. And the reason for that is cancer cells are our own cells, but gone rogue. Uh, what the new types of cancer treatments that are being developed focus on is reprogramming our immune systems to identify those rogue cells and then eliminate those cancerous cells from our bodies. Now, this is a very, um, I guess, a, a newly developed treatment. It is still very much in that kind of stage where we're working out collectively, medical research scientists, doctors, working out how to make these treatments more effective. But even in the initial stages, they're showing very, very significant promise. So the first treatment that was developed was a drug called Opdivo, and it started human trials about six years ago now. This is a drug that was developed to treat skin cancer, uh, and in particular, stage four melanoma. Stage four melanoma, if you were diagnosed with that, it's again another one of those terrible diseases. You typically had about a six month window of life left. Opdivo, amongst about 20% of the patients that received that treatment, 
will put their cancers into remission. So you've gone from a 100% chance of death to now a materially lower one, but still high at 80%. But these treatments, again, they're, they're still in the development phase. And the latest iterations of these drugs, and, and we're starting to work on combination therapies, are showing efficacy amongst patient groups of 30, 40, 50, even 60% in some cases. So we're definitely in this phase where the effectiveness of these treatments is skyrocketing. From an investment perspective, there are huge opportunities here. Now, this is a part of the marketplace that is challenging to understand from an investment perspective, because when you're looking at healthcare companies that are developing these types of immuno-oncology treatments, you need to understand their financial metrics, so their revenues, their cash flows, their profitability, but you also need to understand the medical science technicalities of will the drugs that they're focused on developing, will they actually be more effective than the competing drugs? And so that dual set of skills, financial analysis, but also medical research science skills, make this a really challenging part of the market to understand. The result of that is often these companies, the leaders in this space, are mispriced. So this is data from roughly a year ago, but about a year ago, sell-side estimates, so broker estimates, were that these immuno-oncology treatments over time, this new type of cancer treatment, that they would have a total global addressable revenue base of about five billion US dollars per year. The way we analyze these companies at Wellington, we believe that that addressable annual revenue base is closer to 60 billion dollars a year, 12 times the amount that is reflected in those valuations. So again, I think this is great for us as people, as people who might get sick over time or our loved ones might get sick over time, these treatments are becoming much more effective. But as investors, there are also huge opportunities here. There's another part of the market that I can touch on. If this would be interesting, please ask questions. But this is not in the pharmaceutical or biotech area, but in the medical devices and robotics areas. And again, these are parts of the market where innovation is driving huge, huge positive change. So the efficacy of treatments, so for example, the success rates in certain surgery types are much higher when a medical robot is used than when a traditional human surgery is performed. Really, should we trust a robot to, do, to perform an operation on this? <laughs> uh, Gary, uh, when it comes to the game changer in the technology trends uh, in, in Asia or in China in particular, can you pinpoint more on that? How is it going to have the spillover effect you know, on other countries here in, in Asia as well? Yeah, sure. So, and if you think about payments, uh, again, going back to, to, to my point earlier, you can start to see Alipay stickers everywhere. Right? I, I was walking around sort of near the hotel yesterday. Some of the shops have Alipay stickers. You can start to see that the, these Chinese companies in particular are, are moving overseas, but these, these are for their own tourists at the moment. Right? But you're starting to get a mindset. Okay, Alipay, that's, that's, that's a mobile payment. Um, on the 1st of October this year, um, Tencent w has started to allow Hong Kong residents to use uh, their TenPay accounts in China for the first time ever. So effectively, that's the first time a foreigner 
can start to use TenPay within China, and the Chinese are starting to use uh, are able to use TenPay in Hong Kong. Okay, that is that is stage one. If that is how successful, how do they overcome the foreign exchange uh, uh, questions here? That. That is one of the that is the multi-billion-dollar question. I mean, at the moment, it is very much small-ticket items, right? And so, and so, hence, you're not getting the big-ticket items that I was talking about, sort of trading televisions and things like that. Um, but what you what you can sense is that that is stage one. That is a, that is a test testing ground. If that is successful, then what's stopping it, them rolling it out to other countries, right? And, and and that is definitely something we can see. Having said that, I mean, the predominant focus at the moment for these companies is their domestic market. It's huge. Um, it's still fairly underpenetrated, um, and, and, and that is a primary focus. Mm -hmm. Can we have the uh, poll question? Second one. So the question is, who do you think will be the winner going forward? These uh, top technology companies, uh, Google Maps, Amazon, Alibaba, Tencent, Tesla, with Elon Musk still CEO of the company, Apple, and Samsung. Uh, Google Maps seems to be fishing on the top, you know, Alibaba. You want to take on Alibaba. Uh, when Alibaba is going to be a $1 trillion company, its market capitalization now is about 400000 uh, oh, 500,000. Alibaba, let's call it, is around four, let's say 400 million at the so moment. 400 billion, yeah. Um, it, will be the, it will be a trillion dollar company when it, when it gets an extra 600 billion uh, market cap. Um, <laughs> I don't know when that will happen, but that, 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 that's my sit on the fence answer. Um, in terms of the, the outcomes of this, I mean, I do think Alibaba, in, if we think about it, is a huge disruptor. You're seeing, you're seeing the move into other markets, particularly in Southeast Asia um, and, and, and beyond. Where they won't be disruptive is the US. Right? Um, in the same way that China stops US companies, US internet and sort of uh, technology companies operating within its own country, the US is, is reciprocating that as well. So, so you, there is space for more than one to be perfectly frank, and you can see, you can see the case for all of them. Um, one, one that I would just point out quite quickly is, is thinking about Google Maps and, and such. People don't think about companies like Didi. So Didi is the Uber of China. It, it is an unlisted company at the moment, but they do 20 to 22 million rides per day on the car sharing app. That's more than Uber does globally. So what these guys are doing, they're getting all of that data, they're getting all of that travel data from the cars, um, and they're thinking about moving into maps. And they're thinking about how can we expand this. And they, they bought recently the, uh, a car sharing company in Brazil. They're thinking about replicating that in Brazil as well. So, so there are a lot of companies out there, not just the ones that we know quite well. Um, one that companies like Didi, which could be huge disruptors of the future too. Mm. Philip, uh, do you think that Apple, Apple is now the world's largest companies in terms of market capitalization, followed by Amazon? You think? These two companies, given the fast technology disruption, will continue to dominate the technology world or even the corporate world 10, 20 years from now. Yeah. Given the fierce competition from, from the Chinese companies, they are catching up. Yeah, it, it's a very, very good question. So um, I think the challenge that Apple faces in particular is, and we've seen this actually in the last two sets of, of iPhone releases, is 
the phones do basically the same thing. So I have, this is a, an older model, this is an iPhone 7, so that's like three years out of date. But guess what? It does the same thing as the iPhone 8, and the same thing as the iPhone 10, and the same thing as the iPhone 10s and 10s Plus. Um, and what we've seen as a result of that is when the iPhone 8 came out, the growth rate, the new incremental growth rate of sales slowed. Then when the iPhone 10 came out, slowed further. This year, iPhone 10s and 10s Plus slowed further. So Apple, I think, faces a really significant challenge today, which is its core business is an X-growth business. Now that's not to say that they're not an innovative business. It's not to say that they might not be able to develop new parts of their business. So for example, their streaming platform, Apple TV, that might over time really re-accelerate their growth, but it's not clear cut. So, you know, for example, Netflix today is far, far more competitive than Apple is in that streaming service. So I do think that the challenge with innovation and disruption is that the winners don't stay winners forever. Mm. Now they can stay winners for quite long periods of time, but equally the incumbents can get disrupted by the newer companies that are nipping at their heels. And so, you know, one of my favorite examples of this is in the IT sector, back in the 70s, IBM was by far the largest and most successful technology company globally. IBM alone made up 75% of the total cap of the IT sector around the world. Today, it's a tiny player in the IT segment because everyone else has come in and eaten their lunch. Very good. Oh, uh, you, you think that uh, the Chinese companies, you have a chance to catch up? Yeah, sorry. I just want to come back to that question on Apple, and I'll come back to that. I think one of the big challenges that Apple faces is its supply chain. Mm. If you really think about it, the trade war is a disruption. Apple is dependent upon China for the production of its iPhones. It cannot overnight shift production to Mexico, to Canada. That is a huge challenge for Apple. That's what they're grappling with now, over and above the product innovation. So they, as are most US companies, I personally think, are not, have not fully grasped what the consequences of the trade war will have on them, not only in sort of two ways, because their biggest, one of their biggest markets is China, but they're also the development and the, and the production of their equipment or their products is in China itself. So if you look at the back of a, an iPhone, it says designed in California, but we all know it's assembled in China. And so supply chain, I think, will be a big issue uh, for the likes of Apple and a lot of companies who depend upon China for its production. Gary, um, tell us about the outlook for the overall uh, technology sector in China and also in Asia. Going forward, 2019, you think that the technology sector you know, will stay as a recovery? The outlook from a fundamental perspective is, is, is absolutely fine. Right? Um, the innovation is happening disruption is happening, um, and you can see that. The issue is, and actually the previous speaker sort of alluded to this as well, is of course valuation. 
Um, these stocks were trading at the end of last year at, at pretty extreme valuations, and um, they weren't necessarily the best investments to make. So there is a difference between being a good company and a good stock. Now, the, the slightly good news is, is if there's a silver lining somewhat to the market correction we've been seeing, is that these good companies are starting to become better stocks. Um, and so, therefore, we are starting really to look a bit more into this space again. I mean, if, if, we were, if I was here nine, ten months ago at the beginning of the year, we, I would have been telling you we're trimming our positions. Um, we are now looking potentially to add, right? And, and it's about that, that, that valuation perspective. So, would I, would I sit here and recommend everybody to go out and buy technology stocks right now? Um, I would say be very careful, of course, you have to be selective, but, but now is, is, is an interesting sort of point where we are looking at, at, at some of these names. Not, not all of them, I'll admit, um, but it's, it's getting more attractive. Philip, yeah, uh, tell us about the uh, outlook for the healthcare sector uh, going forward to next year. Sure. Um, so we, we continue to have a very, very constructive outlook for the sector overall. But within that, where we're positioned is in the companies that are the innovation leaders. So I guess what I would say is you know, the, the sector of healthcare, if you look at you know, the structure of the index, for example, you don't necessarily want a passive exposure within that sector. There are a number of companies, so particularly very large cap pharmaceutical companies, that are effectively resting on their laurels. They're not focused on growing and developing their businesses over the next five to 10 years. They're happy that they've got an existing set of drugs that are already in the marketplace, already available for sale, that are generating a decent amount of revenue. Now, we think that the challenge for those companies is that financial markets are pretty efficient. And financial markets are really good at reflecting in current share prices all of the information that's already in the public domain. So when we look at opportunities in the healthcare sector, and again, we are bullish, but we're most bullish on those companies that are the R&D leaders, the focus where the focus is on developing new treatments or new technologies or new medical devices that will only come into the market in three years' time or five years' time or 10 years' time even. It's a very long horizon sector because that's the information that's not currently reflected in the share prices. And so we are bullish, but we're really bullish on a subset of companies that are the most innovative businesses. Um, in terms of the pharmaceutical segment, pharma and biotech segment of healthcare, that's the single largest part of the overall healthcare market. Globally, it's about 60% of the market. We have zero exposure to the vast majority of companies in that segment. The only ones that we own are the most innovative businesses. There are very few of those that are large cap pharmaceuticals businesses. There's many more that are mid cap and small cap, even biotech startup businesses. So we have a huge skew in our portfolio to that subset of companies. The same is true in the devices area, so robotics makers or medical devices like stents and pacemakers, those developers, where again, there is a lot of opportunity, but in a targeted subset of those companies. Pitigan, we are moving into the digital economy. Uh, China's digital economy has already surpassed the US, even uh, also Europe. Uh, Mr. Putin, the president of 
Russian Republic recently said that the next superpower will be the country who have a dominant uh, role in, in AI. Do you agree with this? Yeah, and I, I think that China is at the very forefront of AI uh, through both this chart here. If we can just show the chart. Yeah, so what we have here is at the very bottom, the way that we look at it, and when you look at sort of China, you've got AI infrastructure at the bottom, and this is effectively gathering the data, uh, and this is where the likes of uh, Alibaba and so forth have the cloud, and then you have the applications where effectively you're interpreting that data, and then the industries that are using that data and so forth uh, in, in different industries. So from our perspective, we feel that China is at very much at the forefront of this, uh, and given the use of it in multiple industries, uh, I think it's something that, 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 is, uh, that is key. If you compare against India, I think India is still uh, behind China from that perspective. They obviously have the ability, but they're not technically as savvy as the Chinese. Uh, and uh, so I don't see any competition right now. Uh, and, and sort of China has the lead, and I think it will continue to maintain the lead as long as it comes back to the point Phil was making. In terms of R&D spend, the Chinese have the willpower, have the ability, and will spend. That will ensure that they maintain the lead. Uh, and uh, it's an exponential lead uh, which will just grow over time, and I think other countries will continue to lag behind, uh, and as time goes by, the distance becomes a lot, dis a lot greater to catch up for. I think we've run out of time. To, uh, with this, I would like to end our discussion. Uh, with, please uh, give a big round of applause to our panelists.